everybody, this is Peter and Hannah from Gordon College, and you're listening to the Outcast Podcast, where you hear stories of the cross-cultural challenges and joys that international and multicultural students experience while studying in the United States. On Outcast, we invite international and multicultural students to share their background and help bring understanding to their diverse perspectives on the world. Dr. Bob is a professor of psychology at Gordon College. She joined the Gordon College faculty in the fall of 2015, coming from Northwestern University, where she had been a research associate working on the neural correlates of bilingual language use and cognitive control. Susan's work has been supported by the National Science Foundation, the German Research Foundation, and the Graduate Women in Science. She grew up in a missionary family and lived in Germany and Austria till she was 12 years old. She and her spouse, Jamie, and their three boys, Ben, Jake, and Nate, live in the Boston area. Welcome, wow. Dr. Bob. I'm <laughs> so excited to have you here. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Uh, thank you for your time. And I don't know, Hannah, do you, have you been Dr. Bob's class? Yes. So we're I, both students. We're of both students yes. of Dr. Yes. Bob. <laughs> yep. I loved the class I was in. Um, I took Psych 180 with Dr. Bob, and it was it was great. You're a fantastic professor. I learned Thanks. a lot from you. It's a Even, fun class, masked and all. Yeah. Oh. Yep. Yeah, it was. Even though psychology is not my major, it was still interesting. It was really fun. I learned a lot. It was it was great. Yeah. yeah, I remember taking research methods, which I don't know, you still teach that? I don't. I actually passed okay. that one on. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. But I honestly, I really did enjoy that class. And my question is, as a psychology professor, what is your favorite topic to teach in the class? Surprisingly, I really do like teaching intro as a class Mm. because there are so many different topics. Mm. Disadvantage is you don't get to go very deep into things, but the advantage is that you sort of get to pique students' interests in a lot of things. And most students will find at least one week (laughs) that they find interesting. Mm -hmm. So that's fun. I also think there's just a lot of potential for combining faith and psychology in the classroom in a place where there's so many topics. Do you have a favorite week or favorite module or favorite topic that you just love yeah. i have to say language don't i language. Well, of course. <laughs> right right we'll say get language. into that <laughs> i have to say language i actually taught language right before break and i felt really bad because i could tell a lot of my students were like oh dr bob <laughs> i can tell this is your hobby horse you know? <laughs> i really don't care about these linguistic terms that uh, you're checking in here <laughs> anyways that's so cool and okay i've always been curious about this so does your background as a psychologist affect and change the way that you teach students? I'm sure it does. And if it does, then how? That's a great question. I would actually say that what has affected me more was the fact that when I was a graduate student, I was in linguistics, but I was taking a lot of classes in education on second language teaching. Mm -hmm. And that perspective, the education perspective, has impacted me more even than my psychology. Mm. Then when I went to Penn State, I was in psychology, but also in applied linguistics. And there, too, there was a real emphasis on mentoring and education, and I learned a lot there. And then my best friend is actually Professor Ballack here on campus, and we've been friends since Penn State, so we we led a Bible study together there. And so her education perspective has really mentored me a lot in how I think about teaching and just the developmental aspects of learning, Mm -hmm. that it's a process that we need scaffolding. We need careful accompanying in the process that not every person's at the same place or space. How do you accommodate for those differences? Yeah. Do you have an example of how that has impacted you interacting with the student or teaching a specific class? I think some of the pieces that are important to me are 
providing spaces where students can have discussions but not mm-hmm. feel like they're on the spot. So how do you create organic discussion yeah. that's invitational and that's also respecting that some students don't feel comfortable in the classroom? Right. It can be anxiety producing. So I like to switch things up. I really love how much we do online now. I like to have mm-hmm. discussions online. We didn't do it in research methods so no, much, but Hannah no. will remember. And I actually found those discussion spaces. I know some students were, would just like, you know, throw in a comment, get it done. <laughs> but some really engaged. And that allowed, I think, sort of more organic conversations to take place outside the classroom and continue thinking about the topics. That's mm-hmm. important. Yeah. It can't just be isolated to the classroom. It has to be something that permeates. And when you have that vision, then you really learn, I think. Mm. That's super interesting. So speaking of language and and all of these things, how many languages do you speak and do you have a favorite one? (laughs) I say three on a good day. I grew up speaking English and German. And then in high school, I learned French and continued that through college and studied abroad in France. Professor DeMauro could test the fact that I will still dabble in French, mm. but it's unfortunately very rusty. Okay. So I can comprehend pretty well, and I love French. It's just a beautiful language. It really is. But there's things about every language that I like. I find German to be very precise, and I can see words better in German. They're just very concrete. An mm. uh, example is a glove is literally a hand shoe. Yeah. The image of that mm-hmm. is very strong, right? But then English is the language of my heart. And what about, what about French? I think I love the sounds of French because it's just, you know, English and, and German are Germanic languages. There's yeah. something sort of choppy about the rhythm. Uh-huh. And when you look at the rhythm of languages, actually Romance languages put the emphasis on words in a different way than Germanic uh. languages. And that's what we hear. Right. You mentioned about German language being very, like, concrete. Do you think it, it relates to body language and how people speak that? Oh, that's an interesting question. So certainly hand motions differ across cultures. I mean, so there's stereotypes. Like you think about Italian or even French use their hands quite a bit. Mm. Everybody actually uses their hands. So, Mm. yeah, maybe. I was just wondering because if the words sound round, the way you express those words, a little bit different. So there are theories on on language and that the sound of a word sort of mimics even what the word means. Mm. Right? We have theories on that. I bet there are some correlations there. Right. Question is how much are those there from the beginning and how much are those things that we sort of superimpose on the structure of language? I don't know. Wow, that got very technical. <laughs> next question. During your you know, research with bilingualism, have yeah. you found any interesting facts about it? My advisor in grad school did a lot of research on thinking about how languages are active in the brain. And there was sort of this initial idea many, 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 many years ago, so like mid-1900s, that you had this language switch, right? So Uh if I'm bilingual, I can switch one language on. Like right now, I'm speaking English to you, so I've switched my French and my German off. And then if they're relevant, then I would switch them back on. And what her lab has shown and some of the stuff that I've done, and I just find this fascinating, is that time and time again, we've seen that to some degree your languages are always active Mm -hmm. and at the ready. It sort of makes sense because I think of the brain as being very opportunistic, very efficient, wanting to be able to jump in at a second's notice or millisecond's notice maybe. So this idea of co-activation, but still it's counterintuitive because people aren't aware of the other language being active necessarily. Yeah. So I know you know a little bit German. Yeah. We got, so maybe it's not surprising that my German would be active right now, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. But even in a context where I have no idea, 
um, we actually see that that language is, is active and I actually did a really cool study in Spain with bilinguals who also spoke Basque, mm. which are two languages are quite different from each other. And we actually showed that in a, in a monolingual context, in a context where only one language is relevant, mm-hmm. these were participants who were recruited thinking they were only going to use one language, their other language was also active. Well, wow. Yeah. I mean, so. I feel like that makes sense. There's been times when I speak Czech or when I speak English where I will forget an English word. Yeah. And I know the Czech word, but I, I don't know the English word mm-hmm. for it or vice yeah. versa. So that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. When you were talking about speaking German and stuff, when I was in your class, I, I think I, I read something in your bio that you had a German background, but I didn't, it didn't register with me until you said the name of a German philosopher. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I was like, wow, that sounded like a native speaker. I don't know why I was surprised. No, it was a different one. I can't remember which one it was. Or it was like some Freud. German, yeah, some German something. word. But it was funny because I remember being just like surprised. Yeah. Because even if I don't speak the language, I can tell if you're not a native speaker or not. And the way that you said that was so German. <laughs> and I remember being like, what just happened? <laughs> Where did that come from? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, I don't know. Either she's really good at names, <laughs> but you knew that like she spoke German. I did, but it wasn't something that I had really like paid attention to yeah. that much. Uh-huh. And I think it w- I was just surprised because you sounded like a native <laughs> when you said whatever it was that you said. And I remember being like, oh my gosh, my European radar just went way up yeah, after that. We play this game on my family, actually, right? Because my husband oh. learned German late in life. Mm. Yeah. And then my oldest learned German pretty early in life. At mm. one and a half, he started learning and then my twins started learning uh, maybe around five. Yeah. Uh-huh. And so they play this pronunciation game. And they were doing it last night. They were like, Dad, oh. say Bratwurst. <laughs> and he's like, Bratwurst. Yeah, I mean, no, he did it better than that. I yeah. can't imitate him very well. He actually has a really good accent. Uh-huh. But my kids were laughing at him. It was very unfair. Oh, <laughs> no, that's, that's, that's funny. Wow. Okay, so we're a bit interested in Austrian and German culture, yeah. and they're they're two different countries. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> Thank lot you of, for saying that. A lot of people don't realize that, but it's true. Austria and Germany are yeah. two very different and countries. Very passionate. Very about different that cultures, yes. even though they share the same German language. Yeah. So, what are your favorite pieces of both, and what do you miss the most from both, as Hard you're living question. in the states? You know, one of those stereotypes that exist in general, and this is sort of across Europe, I think, is the idea that Europeans are cooler than Americans. It takes longer to get to know them. And that once you've established a relationship, though, it's genuine and it's for life. And I would have to say in my experience that that's been true both in Germany and Austria, that creating relationships takes a longer time. But then they're incredibly meaningful. And that's, you know, something that it's hard because then I laugh. And I remember times when I was living in Germany and I was like, I'd give anything for a little bit of fake friendliness yeah. right now. <laughs> I'm in the grocery oh, yeah. line and I'm like, can you just smile at me? I'm trying to pack up my groceries as fast as I can. Can yeah. you just, you know, give, throw me a little bone here? But that, so that, that genuineness really impacted me and I think throws me because then the superficial friendliness that can exist in some pockets of the U.S. I think maybe that's why I felt actually a little bit comfortable moving to the Northeast because I feel like the Northeast is a little bit more like that. No, I agree with that. It is. It's, I think the Northeast is the most European part of America Yeah, because of that. I mean, we've lived in our neighborhood for almost seven years and I still have neighbors next to me 
that have never been in their house. Hmm. Or yeah. invited. Yeah, never invited, never nothing. And we have great conversations. It's very odd to me. <laughs> Seven years and wow. never been inside their house. So you would say that those are the two things that you Couple miss? Things, yeah. So do you think you could give the listeners and us a, a bit more background to your history, where you were to where sure. you are now? Yeah. Um, so my parents were missionaries in Germany and Austria until I was 12. So I was actually born in Germany. And then from zero to six, so I went to German-speaking kindergarten. We lived in Germany and in Bonn, first in Stuttgart and then in Bonn. And then we moved to Vienna, Austria, and we lived there till I was 12. And again, went to German-speaking schools. So we were really immersed in the culture that was incredibly important to my parents. They had seen sort of other models of mission. For them, it was really about getting to know the culture and the people and understanding where they were spiritually and what their needs were rather than coming in with sort of American agenda and this is how it's done. And really accompanying them on their spiritual journey. So I kind of served that until I was 12. And then we moved to Virginia, where my dad had grown up for part of his life. And then I spent a long time in Virginia. So went mm. to middle and high school there, went to college there. And then after college, I went for a year to Texas, actually with the same mission organization that my parents worked for, because I actually was very interested in missions. I was more interested in going to France, actually, at that point. And while I was there, I was in Texas. <laughs> And I was uh, in the panhandle of Texas, and I was working with students who had never left Texas. Mm. And it blew my mind. Yeah. It blew my mind. <laughs> it's like, wait a minute, what happened here? Where are we? You know. And that was a really rough year for me. I mean, talk about culture shock. And it was it was humbling because here is somebody who thought that they could transverse cultures really easily and all of a sudden I couldn't <laughs> well it's Texas too <laughs> <laughs> that's that's like yeah. a different country low-key it's it very different it was very different yeah but it for me it underscored sort of I have to do something with culture and language in some way and my mom was actually the one who said well Susan you have a degree in French a minor in German you're bilingual. You also have a degree in psychology. Have you thought about linguistics? It kind of combines everything. Mm -hmm. And at that point, I thought, well, yeah, I'll just teach English as a second language. I can travel the world. I can maybe do missions. I feel called to do that. And so I went back to Virginia to the University of Virginia and did a master's in linguistics. And while I was there, though, my advisor had me working on some research projects. Mm -hmm. I just got hooked. And he's like, I don't think you're going to be happy <laughs> teaching English. Mm -hmm. I think your brain works a little different. Nothing wrong with teaching English, but I think you're not going to be happy. And so then I applied to Penn State and uh, got into their PhD program, and the rest is kind of history. But I did research wow. on bilingualism, and I just loved it. Mm. It was kind of like, oh, this is what I was born to do, you right. know? And the teaching angle, too. I mean, I love teaching. That's why I'm at Gordon, right? I mm. didn't go to research one institution, but that was pretty intentional. I mean, let's be honest. Academia is rough. Getting into an R1 research institution is challenging but it was also very intentional I wanted to teach and then you got married so then I got yeah, yeah. so I met my husband at Penn State uh -huh. we kicked out to California to Stanford where I was going to do a postdoc and I did some research there and then we moved to Germany for three years and I did research mm -hmm. there and then we moved <laughs> to Chicago for two years wow. and I did research there can you see how amazing my husband is wow he, he trailed <laughs> me around <laughs> he followed me wow. everywhere we joke we have a traveling team and then we underway, we started, so we had our first in California, and then took a while to get the twins, and we mm -hmm. had those in Chicago, mm -hmm. and then we brought them with us here <laughs> to Boston. Yeah. And, yeah, because you were born in Germany, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. And Austria as well, you were, some part of your lives, you spent your time there. What was your 
could you tell us about your experience growing up? Because that yeah. kind, of, kind of elevated your cultural experience sure. forward. Some of the main differences that they are in, in culturally speaking, uh-huh. and also your family's ministry as well. Yeah. So how it was received and. That's interesting. I mean, so I've told you a little bit about my parents' mindset. They were also very family-oriented, so they always said they wouldn't sacrifice us on the altar ministry, which is why we weren't in English school or a, a yeah. um, German word came to mind. What do we call them? Boarding schools yeah. there? Boarding mm-hmm. school. Internat. <laughs> Boarding school. My parents were very hands-on. My dad traveled quite a bit when I was young, when we were in Germany. And that was kind of a harder period, I think, for my parents, which bled into our kids' experience. So my mom had my brother, and then two years later, she had a late miscarriage. Mm -hmm. And then two years after that, she had me. Mm -hmm. And the psychological understanding of grief was very poor at that time. So it was an incredibly traumatic experience for them, especially for my mom. And so she was in depression for a long time. And so the whole experience in Germany, and the weather in Germany is also yeah. very gray. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> it's um, where we were in Bonn, it was just, you know, we, there's this expression in German, Donnerwetter noch einmal, which just means like thunder weather once again. Mm. And oh. they would change it to Bonnerwetter noch einmal. So it just kind of like, but, yes, yeah. you know, Bonn was very rainy. <laughs> and then we moved to Austria, and Vienna, the weather was just so much sunnier and and maybe my mom was coming out of her depression too and she and we were into school and so we were having tighter relationships we weren't at at home as much Mm. and she was able to develop different relationships and my dad was home more he wasn't traveling as much for his work and so I think it's hard for me to sort of tease apart my experience in Germany and my experience in Austria from what was happening in our family. Mm. But for me, the six years in Austria were definitely brighter and warmer and friendlier and more relationally happy, Mm. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And also how, how involved were you in your family's ministry? Yeah, not really. I remember, so my parents led a Bible study for theology students, which sounds Mm. sort of funny, but you know, in, in Austria, the, the idea of religion, you, you could study religion and it not be a personal thing. Yeah. And so for them, it was really trying to combine the personal and the theological sort of abstract mm. theoretical knowledge, if you yeah. will. So yeah, I remember sure. students being in our home and sharing meals with them and having fascinating conversations with mm-hmm. these you know, young adults and having a lot of attention that way. And then I remember being on furlough. We would go to the U.S. every two to four years mm. And having to travel around and stuff. But mm-hmm. beyond that, we weren't really, as kids, part of the ministry per se. Mm-hmm. Beyond just what was sort of naturally there. Right. Yeah. And both my parents were just very relational in their approach to ministry. It was really about the relationships. For my mom, it was about getting to know our neighbors, getting to know the parents of our friends, and just kind of sharing life. And I think being Americans gave us an in because people were so curious. Yeah. You know, like, uh, oh, you're yep. so cool. No, I mean, we were right. not cool. Like, <laughs> you know, we were wearing hand-me-downs. Right. We were living paycheck to paycheck. We were yeah, not yeah. cool. But the fact that we could speak English, you know, we had these. It's very attractive. It is. To Europeans. Is it? Yes. It is. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, I don't know, this, yeah, taste of U.S. culture. Yeah. Yeah. It's the culture, you say? Well, it's so tied to Hollywood, right? Mm -hmm. So you think about this predominant U.S. Mm -hmm. perspective that's pervasive in the world. I mean, it really is kind Mm. of hegemonic. Yes. You want to get really complicated. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And and also, like, a lot of people will watch U.S. movies, American movies, and they're stationed in, like, Miami or L.A. or I don't know. And they Mm. get this postmodernist American dream idea. 
And so, because I think outside of the U.S., in my experience, everyone has had this this kind of picture of the United States as still this like land of prosperity. Mm-hmm. Yes. And that was what it was like before when there are tons of immigrants coming to the States and all those things, because that was the land of opportunity. It was where you could raise your kids. It was, I don't know, this, this like land of milk and honey, if you really yeah. want to put it yeah. that way. And, yeah. and, and I think now it's, it's less of that, but that is still there. Still and there. so when you say, Oh yeah, like I'm an American and, European school system like you will get attention yes because of that and it's not that they're not critical I mean absolutely they For feel sure. very free especially our politics they yeah, can't oh, yeah. wrap their head around <laughs> they're like yes. what is going on over you there yeah. conservatism is like what yes you're doing what it's not a thing uh, um, I mean it's a thing you can you know and it's a thing but it's it's things are changing yeah so yeah. it's probably more a thing now when than when I was young mm-hmm. I mean it's very interesting so I think that gave us a privileged place or space to start conversations and relationships with. Can you tell us more about, in your experience, what are the main differences between like Germans and Austrians? You talked about that a little bit when we talked before, and I just thought it was really interesting. I mean, I think that there's a sense of seriousness in the German culture, and this was my experience, so I'd be very open for listeners who disagree with me on this point. But that was, you know, again, through the lens of a child's eyes to some degree, and then going back. I think a lot about Hitler's influence on the country and they still they carry this shame about what happened even people my age who you know really didn't experience it but there's sort of this feeling of never again we're not going to let this happen again and so we're going to question things and we're going to think about things seriously and we're going to make sure this doesn't happen and I think that's very pronounced in the German culture not that it's not there in the Austrian culture but I think also sort of geographically yeah. where things mm-hmm. are, the Austrian culture tends to be a little bit more relaxed. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe the sun that I was talking about has an influence there too, but it's not quite as rigid. It's interesting. I really deal a lot with anxieties. Yeah. And when my husband lived in Germany, it was sort of like he suddenly understood why I was the way I was. Mm-hmm. And then we've been having our kids in German school on Saturdays. <laughs> <laughs> and That's the awesome. amount of times that my husband will shake his head and be like, that is so German. Because <laughs> it's just very rule-abiding all the yeah. same. Like, so there's mm-hmm. weird, I'm saying they question things, and yet there's also this deep need to, to follow rules and systems, right? So if there's any infraction, I, I hate crossing streets. I cannot jaywalk. I can't because in Germany, underneath the light, there is a sign that says, for the children as an example, den Kindern zum Vorbild, which means you do not jaywalk. You do not cross on red. Yeah. And this is true. It can be 2 a.m. in the morning. No, no cars, cars on the street, <laughs> and somebody's walking back from wherever they were, and yeah. they will be standing at the crosswalk wow. waiting for it turn, to turn green. Now, they also have heavy fines. So if you have a driver's license and you jaywalk, they will take your driver's license. Wow. Wow. That's huge because it's really expensive to get mm. your driver's license mm. in Germany. So there are reasons for it, too. But it's interesting to think about sort of how that culture also shaped my own anxieties as a child. Who I think it's stressful navigating multiple cultures. And I don't yeah. know if anybody's done a study on this. As a psychologist, I'm, I'd be fascinated <laughs> just to see if anxiety levels are higher in third culture kids compared to other kids, other experiences. But I think there might be more opportunities for potential stress. And then growing up in a culture that has a lot of rules and systems to be followed, I think that was really 
hard. I never knew when I was going to cause an infraction. I, I still remember these old ladies like yelling at me because I picked the wrong flower. Mm-hmm. Wow. Daisies in the grass were okay to pick. Daisies in the flower beds you didn't pick, yeah. but they looked the same to me. <laughs> you know, I was just bringing flowers out to my mom. <laughs> so anyways, things like that. I have a question because Hannah and I, we had some European students and guests as well. Yeah. And we're just having a conversation, but the term anxiety and all of that, she mentioned that not talked about or whatever in the European culture. And how have you recognized that? Yeah, I think if I'm, it's true, or it, I think that is true. I was just even trying to think how I would explain that. I mean, definitely, you know, it exists clinically; sure. it exists for sure. And I think it's it's growing in awareness, just like here, because it's on the rise, right? I mm-hmm. mean, we know the statistics on anxiety are just it's like one in three now, or something like that. Wow. It's really, really high. I just, for me personally, I know that my experience of the culture shaped my anxieties. And even the way I want to keep my home, I have these standards in my head. Yeah. So when I had the twins, my mom's best friend, one of her best friends actually flew to the U.S. She's like an aunt to me. And she stayed with us for five weeks. And I still have this image. I came home. I think I'd taken the twins who were like, I don't know, they were six months old maybe at that point, to the doctors. And I came back and there was my friend Vera and she was on all fours scrubbing my kitchen floor. <laughs> and I was horrified. You know, I was like, Vera, what are you doing? You know, she's like, well, your kitchen floor really needed to be cleaned. And I'm like, well, I'm wow. sorry. I'm the mom of twins oh. and I've got a five-year-old. You know, I can't do it. Well, I know you can't do it, but it needs to be done. Okay. <laughs> you know, but, but it was also, I mean, she had such a servant's heart. So she was really trying to love me well. But those are sort of the standards. Standards. I don't think an American would ever think about like getting on their, you know, hands and knees and scrubbing somebody's floor as yeah. a priority when you just had babies. Wow. You know, it's wow. like, okay, I'll bring you a meal, you know, maybe I'll do your laundry, but scrubbing your kitchen floor is kind of low on me. <laughs> Yeah, that's interesting. I'd, I'd agree with that for sure. I didn't spend a ton of time in Germany. We actually were more in Austria than we were in Germany. Okay. And I really do deeply respect the German culture. I think it's so rich and, and beautiful. But I, I would agree with you. I think they do carry this this sense of invisible heaviness and darkness mm-hmm. in their culture, especially in Berlin, but also yeah. in other cities around Germany. But Austria is probably one of my favorite European countries. Mm-hmm. It's just so beautiful. I think the second you cross the border, the air yeah. is cleaner. And then you yeah. see the mountains and the yeah. sun is shining and... It's just beautiful. And they generally seem super happy and welcoming and open. And it was my country envy every time coming into Austria. Austria and Slovenia, those were the two that I would have chosen. (laughs) So moving on to your transition, Mm -hmm. what was your transition like coming from Austria to Richmond, Virginia? Because that sounds very culturally shocking to me. (laughs) Especially coming from Austria to like the South. South. That's crazy. The South. Um, What do you remember learning about most? Well, it was a tricky time because I hit middle school. So I started seventh grade and middle school is already rough. It's hard to pick apart what what made it so hard. As I've talked to other people who've had experiences in middle school, it's actually very similar to what I went through. But culturally, I think... Even though German has sort of this formal dress that you use for people you don't know as well, kind of like an honorific system if, you know, Asian language is sort of a similar idea. The use of sort of ma'am and sir, yes ma'am, yes sir, (laughs) things like that. That was kind of weird for me, you know. And then even the school system, so I was used to staying in the same classroom with my 30 
classmates and the teachers would come to me Mm -hmm. and I'd been with those same students for many years Mm -hmm. right so you would just stay in that same class you know people would come and go but you mostly stayed with the same class and now I'm like moving around each class could have a different mix of students that was really rough and honestly it was that transition that really made my faith my own so I remember that move at 12 being pivotal and sort of shifting from a family faith to understanding that God was with me, that Jesus was with me. Mm. I remember walking the hallways and just having long conversations with God and having the sense that I was not alone, mm. even though nobody understood me. <laughs> and it was even things like I remember it was, I think I was eight or nine weeks into a math class till I finally understood. I was, we would sit there at the beginning of math class and I was like, what is everybody doing? They're just like writing in a notebook. I don't know what we're supposed to be doing. Mm-hmm. And it turned out that the teacher was just writing examples of exercises out of our book that we were supposed to practice the first five or 10 minutes of class mm-hmm. on our own. And somehow I'd missed that initial instruction and she never repeated it again. Mm. And so finally I got up the courage to ask a class and I'm like, what are you doing? She's like, what do you mean what am I doing? Mm. I'm doing those exercises on the board, Mm. you know? And I was like, oh. (laughs) So there's sort of this weird, nobody knew what to do with me because on the outside I looked more or less like everybody else. Yeah, Mm. yeah. But I was culturally very different. Mm. I think it was rough too. Some things like in Europe, it's totally fine to wear the same outfit two or three days in a row. And that was taboo in the U.S. People thought yeah. it was dirty, um, right? So they would pass notes. Susan needs new blouses. Susan is gross, things like that. When I went back to Germany in graduate school, one of my first days there, I told my office mate, I was like, oh, I saw that she wore the same outfit that she'd worn the day before. And I was like, that's right. I can wear the same Aww. outfit I wore yesterday. And she's like, what do you mean? <laughs> of course you can. I'm like, no, you don't understand. Mm. This is a big deal. So things like that. It was rough. And now your parents are still... They're in Virginia. They're retired. They just moved last year to a new home, smaller, downsized home. And so where would you say you first formed your own set? Oh, that was, yeah, when I was in middle school in Virginia. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that was tricky, too. And I think I had mentioned this to you all, but sort of this difference between sort of faith and even Christian, concept of Christian faith in Austria and Germany and then sort of moving into a very evangelical, southern conservative <laughs> space, yeah. right? So, yeah. I mean, it's very shocking, yeah. this this level of, I don't know, it, it was just very different. A, a strong emphasis on the personal God, which obviously resonates with me, but a sort of a de-emphasis on the idea that this is a God of ages. Mm. And I think that's something that I miss in the evangelical mm. Faith is a sense of, and certainly there are people who follow the church calendar mm, and, yes. you know, but I went to a Lutheran church in the center of town in Vienna where my pastor sang the liturgy. Mm. This is just, and we sang hymns that were written, you know, in the 16 and 1700s. Yeah. There's just a different sense of like, I'm participating in something that is old mm. and not something that is like new and created just oh. for me. It's something that's for everybody. So... And at that point, did you still want to do missions? I mean, so it was always hard to explain what my parents did. I remember saying, like, my dad was like a counselor. I I really, I recognized that was what they were doing. And when I was young, so probably high school, up and through college, actually, I was going to be an occupational therapist. So I had not even considered missions or ministry of sort of anti I did not want to do that. And then t- when I studied abroad in France... And just saw sort of how 
I saw the relevance of God for the French culture and the absence of God, and it broke my heart. And I wanted to be able to have an opportunity to talk about my faith in France. And so that's when kind of this idea of ministry, again, got sort of reborn, if you will. Mm. Yeah. Would you say was your initial idea of missions? Because <laughs> in my head, missions, wow, you have to be in the church context. You have yeah. to be, you know, like involved with that. But yeah. Like, Interesting. So my parents are part of a mission organization where the emphasis is really on mentoring and what they call one-on-one discipleship Mm -hmm. and also training lay people in the church to lead Bible studies. So it's very word-centered. It's really relationship-centered and and it's not affiliated with the church. Although Mm -hmm. when we were in Austria, my parents were actually on loan to the Lutheran church. So what the Lutheran church was seeing was a huge amount of burnout in pastors because pastors are having to do everything. Mm. And so what they wanted my parents to do was to train lay people how to support the pastor by having Bible studies, which could be the center for even soul care, and therefore release some of the pressure off of the pastors. Mm. So even that was very relationally focused and really not necessarily church focused. So I think that shaped, I mean, even my passion for mentoring in what I do now, like that's my favorite part of teaching is developing relationships. And even research is just an excuse <laughs> to have relationships. Mm. Well, um, speaking of research, what made you want to pursue psychology through studies on bilingualism and linguistics? Mm-hmm. And what was what is your favorite part of the research itself? Yeah. You know, they some people say you study to know yourself. So uh, I definitely think my interest in bilingualism has its roots in having grown up bilingual. For sure. Although my PhD advisor, she laughs and says she's monolingual and she's really, you know, she's one of the foremost researchers in bilingualism. So I think there are many avenues to get to the research mm-hmm. part. For me, it was partially watching my parents. So when they moved to Germany, they were 30 and they had never studied German before. Well, I'll take that back. I think my dad had maybe a little bit in high school or something like that. And they were there for 17 years. And by the time they left, they were so fluent Mm. that I could barely hear an accent. I don't ever remember cognitively being embarrassed about their accent or thinking, you know, they they were poor at at expressing themselves or making huge errors. Mm -hmm. They were really, really fluent. And everybody who talked to me about my parents when I went back later as an adult would say how impressed they were That's with the crazy. level of German they learned. And if you know anything about language theory and, and how we acquire language, that sort of flies in the face of what we're supposed to be able to do, mm-hmm. right? So there's this idea of the critical period that after puberty, maybe even after four or five, like you'll never be a native speaker. And then after puberty, uh-huh. like you can become proficient, but mm-hmm. you'll always have an accent and you'll always make some grammar errors. Mm-hmm. And my parents were so fluent that... It was just impressive. So I wanted to know why. I think that was partially kind of like, yeah, we could we could say Holy Spirit gave my parents yeah, yeah. special dispensation. <laughs> yeah, and maybe I don't know. I do think motivation is a huge factor, and knowing yes. what I know about our story and how important it was for my parents to connect and become part of the culture, and not just fly in and fly out. This this was not a project for them. Mm-hmm. This was a passion and a calling. I think that motivation was huge. Right. It's not where my area of research is, ironically. Right. So. Mm. I've done a little bit with critical period. My dissertation looked at German and grammatical gender and and sort of how the level to which we're able to learn it as second language speakers. I think that's probably a large part of my motivation. That's crazy that they were able to speak to that level. Do they still speak 
they Women. use it. They do. They still have friends and, you know, birthdays and special holidays and things like that. They'll, they'll connect with them via Zoom or whatever, mm-hmm. FaceTime. Mm-hmm. And my mom has um, cerebellar ataxia, which is a degeneration of the cerebellum, yeah. which affects your voluntary muscle control. And so she has a real hard time speaking. Mm. And what's been really interesting is to see how it's actually affected her accent in German. Hmm. So oh. she now sounds like an American speaking German. Interesting. But she never sounded like when I was little. So anecdotally, I mean, there are other case studies that speak to that, that there's sort of this regression in muscle control. But my dad sounds very good still. Mm. Wow. And your husband learned German in three years? Yeah. Yeah. That is. I can't believe that. I cannot believe it. That's crazy. But there too, I mean, one of my earliest memories (laughs) when we were in Germany was my sister had come to visit. Uh, We had just been there a few weeks. My husband had not even taken any German classes yet. And I was welcoming my sister at the train station. We had my one and a half year old with us in the stroller. And I was so caught up in the reunion and I just felt Jamie say, I'll be right back. And I was like, okay. So then Mm -hmm. I look around and he's actually at a sandwich shop ordering (laughs) sandwiches for us. Didn't know any German. (laughs) Like it was no big deal. Like I would have been shuddering in my boots, you know, like Mm -hmm. looking up all the words, whatever. He was like, what? No big deal. Our one and a half year old was going to be hungry. You were saying hi to your sister. It was no big deal. Uh But I think that shows you his mindset. He's very adventuresome. He's, you know, very relaxed. He's perfect for me. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's my yang to my yang. Yeah, he's awesome. So what is your favorite part of the research that you do now? Well, I've gone in a new direction. In fact, I was just on a phone call about this. One of my closest friends who's German that I actually met when I was in Germany doing this pre-doc research in Leipzig. She's still one of my closest friends and now my closest collaborator. Oh, fun. And we just got a National Science Foundation grant to actually look at interactions. Yeah, it's something like $300,000 to look for over sort of two, three years, looking at interactions between native and non-native speakers of English. So my research focus has shifted a little bit to try to understand what happens. How do we shift our language to be able to accommodate people in speech? A lot of research has sort of looked at what the native speaker does to change their speech, but very Mm. little has been done to understand sort of the non-native, or as I like to say, the second language user, and kind of what impact those adjustments have. So the way I think about it is, When we have an infant or a toddler, we use sort of this infant-directed speech. You know, we change our our pitch and we simplify our language. And research suggests that that might be helpful for a child, that we intuitively do this as adults, but that actually might help a child to be able to access not just the sounds of the language, but then also pull out words in the speech stream. And so the question is, when we do that with adults, is that helpful or is it actually harmful? Because you would never speak to an adult like an infant. Well, actually, we do. So there is something called elder speak that in nursing homes, people who are getting cared for nursing homes, sometimes they get talked down to by caregivers. And there's just a lot of overlap in these types of adjustments. And the question is, once you're an adult, it might be helpful, but it could still be offensive, right? And yet we intuitively do this. So I would love to know what it's doing to the second language user when Mm. I adjust my speech that way. And if it's not helpful, I would like to stop it. Yeah. You know, if we think about how diverse our world is, we need to be better about interacting in sort of genuine, healthy ways. Mm -hmm. And that's hard and that's complicated. And I will say, I struggle with that. I mean, even coming to you guys and like telling my story, I'm so afraid I'm going to offend somebody in what I say. Mm. 
even you're asking me about my characterizations about like my experiences in Germany and Austria, like that, that's my experience. But somebody living in Germany, Austria might sure. really be offended by what I just told you all. Mm. Communication is hard. Yeah. And I'm really interested in, in sort of factors, just at a very fine grain. I mean, it's so complex, right? What I'm doing <laughs> is really isolating a few variables and trying to see what impact they have. Well, that's fascinating. Wow. I, have, I literally have so many questions about that. <laughs> yeah. um, Join my research team. <laughs> <laughs> I have funding. <laughs> I can pay you. <laughs> Congratulations, actually. That's so cool. Yeah. Is it just you too, or are you helping to have so, your own research team? So we have one other person on who, who are sort of, the three of us are the principal investigators, and then we hire. We have a graduate student, actually a student who used to be a, a student here at Gordon is now working with my colleague at East Carolina University as her graduate student. So she's going to help us on the project, mm-hmm. and we'll hire other research assistants as well. Wow. Yeah. So, so cool. Fun. So anybody listening who wants to do research with me in the summer, <laughs> just let me know. Yeah. I'll be hiring. Um, yeah. That's awesome. Wow. Well, do you have any right. more questions? Or? I mean, of course. Well, I know. Of <laughs> we, course. we both have one. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, honestly, this has been so great. You have so much more questions. Mm-hmm. And I think as time goes on, interest for bilingualism and all of that, I think it has just yeah. immensely increased. And we, I think it's like we subconsciously don't realize that. Yeah. But then it just helped me pique an interest in, even in my own actions. Yeah. So. And I think what you're saying, I mean, that's kind of one of my big mantras is that we're actually designed to speak more than one language. And that message mm. is hugely important in the U.S. today. Because yeah. there's still this residual idea that learning a second language is hard and difficult. And yes. But our brains can do it, mm-hmm. right? Right. Yeah. And and for me and my faith, that's been really encouraging too, because it means that behavioral change can happen. Mm-hmm. And when we think about Christian formation, we think about wanting to become more like Jesus. This idea wow. that we can learn anything, right? Yeah. It means that even if it's hard, and it is hard. Oh my goodness, mm-hmm. right? I think about all the gross pieces in my life that mm-hmm. I wish I could change overnight. It doesn't happen. It does take hard work, but. But our brains are so malleable. Oh, my goodness, Mm -hmm. you know. And some of my research and other people's research is showing that the brain is changing really, really quickly. And it takes time for that brain change to spill over into behavioral change. Mm -hmm. I think that's just, for me, just a personal encouragement to keep at it, right? I'm certainly not who I was when I was your age. Sure. Mm. And I hope (laughs) by the time I'm my parents' age, I again will have grown in my understanding of life and faith and what it means to interact with people. I wonder when would it be a point where you're like, I'm done with research. <laughs> I feel like you're just still going to continue yeah. doing it. Well, I think right? that's why I love being in, in, in the area <laughs> I do. Like I look at my colleagues here. They're all continuous learners. They're yeah. just passionate about learning. Mm. It's fun. Wow. Well, thank you, Dr. Bob. Thank for you, Dr. Bob, so much. Taking the time to do this. Sure. We will be looking forward to what you guys discover. Yeah. You have to let us know. I will. <laughs> I will. Thanks so much for listening to Outcast. We hope you've enjoyed this conversation. If you'd like to help support this podcast, please share it with your friends and family and on your social media. Outcast is now streaming on all major podcast platforms. You can also find us on our Instagram at ISS underscore Outcast. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>